This episode of the Nevers Podcast is sponsored by Dead Good Teas, aficionados of the sci-fi and horror genre and creators of premium heavyweight t-shirts and hoodies that are built to last. Dead Good Teas ships worldwide, so whether you're braving the Arctic winds of the Yukon or strolling the beaches of beautiful Thailand, Dead Good Teas has you covered. Thank you to Dead Good Teas for supporting quality podcasting. Start shopping today at deadgoodteas.co.uk and don't forget, you can follow them online at Dead Good Tees. This is a Culture Inject production. So we want to welcome Tom O'Pennican to our interview today for the Nevers Podcast. And I'm Kelly. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> and I'm Tyke. There's Tyke. Great. I'm happy to be here, guys. And we're happy to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out of, I'm sure, your very busy day uh, to talk with us. And we're really, really, really excited. So, what was life like growing up, up, up north, far north? I'm sure there's not many acting opportunities up there. So, kind of what, what was life like? And then, how did you get into acting from there? Um, life in a, a northern Canadian town is, um, you know, it's very similar to anyone who's grown up in a small sort of isolated town. The difference being in the Yukon, obviously Canada's population, the majority of the population is all our major city centers and, and closer to the border. Um, Whitehorse, when I was a kid, was only 12,000 people when I was, you know, just starting my, say when I was in kindergarten. Um, by the time I was in high school, it had doubled in population. Mm-hmm. That would largely contingent on the mines and whether they were open and employing people there or the government jobs. Um, so, you know, we doubled in population. But again, we're talking 25,000 people. And it was the city center for many, many communities, all all the communities in the Yukon and even some of them in Alaska who come across the border to shop and do basic goods. So we were really quite isolated. The The largest, the next largest city center to us was, you know, Perhaps Juneau, um, but you know it's 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 an isolated northern community, and um, actually there's there's an incredible amount of art that goes on up there uh, because especially when I was a kid, it happened again this year. But you know it is normal to be minus forty, minus fifty below during the winter for months on end, and um, probably because of global warming, it's been it's been warming up over the last ten years. Like there's actually animals in the Yukon. They weren't there when I was a kid. Cougars could never su- survive up there. Um, they're now moving up to the Yukon. There's now deer there. There were never deer there when I was a kid. Wow. Uh, that said, they've had winters this past winter. Um, one of my best friends is still up there. He's in Dawson City. And uh, they had months of 40, 50 below. We're talking like vehicles, you know, just not even being able to start or, or work. And when I was growing up, that was common. Every year we expected January or February to have temperatures like that so when you have a cold like that people straight up will get cabin fever so they congregate to bars they make a lot of music they drink a lot they dance they party they have fun there's actually an incredible amount of theater in the yukon also uh the arts is alive there there's a lot of music there's a lot of theater so yeah you can act um in terms of making a career and paying your bills you're gonna have a hell of a hard time doing it there um, I mean, comparatively, when it, if we're talking about, you know, the medium of film and television. So I, I always realized that I was going to have to move down south. And I always I, I always wanted to. Vancouver was close to me as a child growing up because we had family in British Columbia. And I would regularly visit, um, you know, at least once a year, if not a couple. And uh, I always had a, a soft spot for Vancouver. It was just a, such a beautiful city that I spent a lot of time and in the, the neighborhood of Kitsilano when I would fly down and visit uh, family, friends. And uh, I ended up living in Kitsilano for almost 17 years off and on in Vancouver. So, yeah, in a long-winded way, that's a little breakdown of how I ended up a van and a, and a brief part of my history in the Yukon. Um, so when you were in Canada, how did you get started in acting? Where did you go after Canada? Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I did, um, I remember in junior high, I may have done a play or two, not significant roles. I wasn't really a theater kid at that stage, but I I was interested in it. I always knew from a young age that I, 
I wanted to act. I dreamt of it. But you know, when you're a child, you, you, everyone's got dreams. You're not sure if you're going to fulfill them. Living in a small, isolated place, one of the, one of the only negative things I can say, um, being a kid, and, and I think anyone can attest to this when they come from small communities, sometimes people don't allow you to dream too big. You know, I know I've always liked the British term, uh, tall poppy. You know, I, <laughs> I oftentimes, um, kept my dreams and aspirations of wanting to pursue film and television to myself. But by the time I got to high school, most of my dearest friends were like, listen, you're, you, you'd be an idiot if you didn't pursue this. You've got to go down. You're going to be an actor. That's a fact. You need to pursue this. So by the time I got to high school, my last year of high school, they had just started a new program where you did. And my father, while he was in government, his government actually uh, built a state-of-the-art uh, music art and drama center at the new college. So I was able to leave my high school with a bunch of other students who were accepted in this MAD program, the acronym MAD, Music, Art and Drama. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we all went up there and, you know, a number of them were in there for art. They were specifically artists, painters, things like that. I actually kind of got in on that. On that, th- I, I used to like drawing quite a lot. And I, I sort of, uh, one of the teachers approached me. I think he was aware of this and <clears throat> offered me uh, uh, a place in this MAD program. And I went in on the merits of the... Um, you know, being loving to draw, but secretly I wanted to act. And uh, everyone in the program was required to act also. So we got to go to the state of the art, brand new multi-million dollar facility built at the college away from the high school and do our last semester of, um, of uh, high school at the college doing this cool program. And that really sort of reignited the fire for me and made me realize, listen, maybe I can pursue this. Maybe I can leave the Yukon go to BC, get into acting classes, maybe even pursue it at university or what have you. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was, I'd say the first step. My father was a, still is when he has the time, was a playwright. He had a theater company when he was in the university, he put on almost 30 different productions. So I grew up knowing my dad was a, you know, a, a thespian, a true one. He's a writer. He, he's an artist himself, but he's been a, He's most well known for being a career politician, mediator, uh, writer. He's a published author. Um, So I had an appreciation of the arts at a very young age. My father was very, very busy um, with his political career when when I was a child. But he would always take me to the films. We had two movie theaters in the Yukon. And he would always take me to films that he wanted to see. And we discussed them afterwards. And to me, again, being isolated in a northern community, seeing, you know, playing a musician or, or, you know, a, a lawyer or a doctor and doing it in a, a, you know, some exotic location, like a city I'd never traveled to or been, been in like across the pond or anywhere else. I, I mean, these things were fascinating to me, Be, you know, being a small, small town Yukon boy, I was like, wow, if I could do that, that would be just incredible for me. Like what an amazing, and I remember thinking that when I was a little kid, like seeing these actors on screen and being able to, you know, play all these different roles and learning all these new skills. I would always ask my dad that. I'd be like, dad, he was playing the guitar there or he was playing the piano. Like, how did they do that? My dad, you know, often say, well, I'm assuming like these are bigger budget films. They'll train these actors intensely for a couple months and they get to learn that skill. To me, that was like incredible. I was like, wow, I could learn to be so many different things. and I could travel to so many different places. And I think I had an appreciation too for just excellent acting at a young age too after seeing so much film with my father and then you know on the other side and i've talked about this many times uh, when asked this question you know uh, on my indigenous side you know i come from a long line of storytellers you know the oral tradition is um is key in our culture and and uh, my grandmother even in broken english was an amazing captivating storyteller and she could uh, she could just hold a room and uh, when she was telling a story you you were you were focused in and uh, she was she was fantastic. There was a, I was very blessed at a young age being surrounded by some excellent storytellers and, you know, including my dad. I, you know, I remember being at a young age, you know, just even being at social events or parties. He was an excellent speaker. I got to see him speak politically at many different uh, rallies or even in the legislature at the House when he was um, when he was uh, the leader of uh, his political party and the premier of the Yukon. I would go go there sometimes and just listen to the debates which was fascinating to me. And uh, I was always very proud of my, my father and his, uh, his uh, storytelling skills and um, also his debating skills. That's probably why you have such amazing answers as well, because you're obviously a good storyteller as well. 
You played Hilo on Battlestar Galactica. You spent all that time with the cast and crew on set playing this really memorable role. So I have to ask, do you understand that finale? And if so, could you please explain it to me? Because I've watched it about five times now and still it just it blows my mind. <laughs> wow, five times. That's impressive. I've only ever seen it once. And to be honest with you, the last time I saw it was when the show ended. So my memory is probably not as uh we couldn't we couldn't depend on it very well i probably remembering parts that i wanted to my brain's probably embellished certain parts and changed it around to fit my own like i remember when i first saw it thinking it was it was such a grand and operatic ending i thought ron moore and the, and the gang did an incredible job at wrapping it up in many ways but yes there were so many unanswered questions i'm sure you're one of the ones who was most most confused or most dissatisfied with the fact that the Starbuck question wasn't really answered. You know, um, Tucker, I'm not sure if you're a reader. I, I'm, I'm a big book reader, book reader. And, um, and, uh, sometimes, sometimes the best books, sometimes the best stories, uh, it's really uh, left up to personal interpretation. I know sometimes we want some closure and we want it to be more definitive and on the, uh, uh you know, it's, it's to be spelled out for us, you know, um, especially when a, a storyline or, a um, perplexing us for for you know 4.5 or five seasons or six years that the show was on beginning from the from the miniseries but sometimes those things just aren't wrapped up well i know that as far as i've learned from doing all the conventions i have and all the fans who have come up and said the same thing um <laughs> it's really up to interpretation man i uh I don't know, man. Maybe she was an angel. Maybe she wasn't. You could go off on so many different tangents really trying to figure this out. And I think even if you sat Ron more down and you had him in private for an hour, you might not understand it even more. I think that might be something <laughs> where Ron didn't even completely understand it and he wanted to leave it up to interpretation. I, I love the finale. I, I, I do think it gets a lot of kind of anger directed. But I thought it was the perfect end to a damn near perfect series. Um. You know, I like they they finally got to Earth. I thought it, it did conclude almost all the stories, and still, I mean, as I said, I've, I've watched it five times now, and I've yet to get through. Uh, spoiler warning to anyone out there that hasn't seen BSG, but I'm yet to get through the uh, the final scene with Adama and Rosalind without just absolutely crumbling into tears. It's one of the most beautiful scenes ever. When I discuss think about certain scenes some of the excuse my language fucking incredible acting that i saw on that show i still get emotional mm. i was on stage a week ago doing a convention uh in vancouver um and i was on stage with uh, aaron douglas and michael hogan and candace mcclure and we were discussing somebody brought up one of the scenes of um where michael hogan where where, where ty has to kill his wife oh. i just hadn't thought about it in a while and then i thought about the scene and and i i got emotional my you, you know i felt it in my throat and my heart right away because the work the work that these actors did on the show the heavyweights that we had to be cast on a show when i'm such a new actor like professionally as a, as a television film actor i've been studying for a number of years but i'm still very green right as as were many of us on on the show the younger cast but to be cast with those legends, those veterans who had already each had 40 years of significant TV Academy Award nomination careers, um, the three of them in particular, um, and to have them as, as leads to sort of guide us along, to be to be the to be the anchors, to be the, uh, you know, to, the, the wise elders to, to, to show us the way and. The work that they did, the leadership that they gave us on that show, they were truly uh, parents and and they were so incredibly given because they've been through this business, which can be so hard on an actor. They've each been through everything. They've been through the ups and downs and had the success. And they all recognized early on, even though it was a sci-fi television show, which other than Everett James almost, none of them really had a lot of experience with. Michael didn't have a lot of experience in that. He hadn't done any significant role that he was recognized for. Michael's a classically trained actor from, um, you know, the Royal Academy in, in Canada. Uh, you know, he, he started off his career um, on stage with Shaw and Stratford with his, with his beautiful wife, Susan. Mary's from New York, classically trained. She mm -hmm. hadn't had any experience with him. But Edward James almost, of course, Blade Runner, my favorite film of all hmm. time, he had experience. And Eddie and Mary and Michael recognized early on the weight, the potential, 
and the beauty of this piece of art just in the miniseries. I remember Eddie saying it to us, you know, many times. I, I, I had a hell of a time even looking at Eddie without being intimidated. This is a man who I saw in Blade Runner when I was just a little kid and I remembered him and his performance. I was asking my dad about that guy. I kept asking my dad about that actor and his performance and who was that actor because he blew me away. And he knew, they all knew early on the potential of the show. Um, and that's really saying something, um, you know, um, and for all of us to have those guys leading the way as our leads uh, to this day, I, I still, I still just, I feel I'm so incredibly grateful that, that they were there to, uh, to guide us and to uh, set the precedent for what ended up, you know, a lot of the young actors too, man, they, they you're either going to step up or you're not going to make, you're not, you, you're going to have a shitty performance against great actors like that. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of us just figured it out real quick. And because the writing was exceptional and our mm -hmm. crew was exceptional, many of us stepped up to the plate and it was, it was the biggest learning curve that I've ever had in my almost 20 years of doing this. You're so passionate about Battlestar and I think that's so amazing. So it's obvious that you're super proud of it. But from that, I was just going to say that I met you 10 years ago at Fan Expo, got a photo. And at that time, I had not seen Battlestar Galactica yet, but I had seen Dollhouse and fell in love with Dollhouse, fell in love with your character, Paul Ballard, and your acting. It was brilliant. And you said to me, OK, you haven't watched Battlestar yet? Like, you have to. It's so good. You'll love it. Trust me. Watch it. And so I did watch it and, of course, loved it loved it and honestly it's uh i i've i've only rewatched it twice in the last 10 years because it's as much as i loved it it's kind of hard to rewatch it's very dark it's very emotional it's a very very intense show and i think that's why i haven't revisited as much because it's it takes a lot out of you emotionally i remember watching it for for the sorry for the first time and just crying every episode like does this ever let up no it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> And I love that about it, but it just, it's intense. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, you know, I'm asked this all the time too, and I, I, I have not seen Dollhouse. I haven't seen an episode since we, since it, it aired originally. It's, it's on the list, but, um, you know, I'm a parent and, uh, I'm a, I'm a busy guy. I don't, I don't often sit around. I, I do, I, I love excellent television in, in film and I still watch as much of it as I can. Um, I try not to waste my time. I try and go off the recommendations of people that I trust or, you know, do my own research. And now we have more content than we ever have. It's ridiculous. I think it's to the detriment of, of art a little bit too, though, because now everybody's absolutely insatiable. You watch something incredible, you peel through it in a couple of days and you're like, what's next? we need to take pause every once in a while and uh but I, I i'm really looking forward to going back to dollhouse and and really watching it again and this is going to be the perfect opportunity to do it you know hold up in the woods really watch the episodes because it's going to be a trip down memory lane you know that was a good 10 years ago now i haven't seen it since and um even just knowing that we were going to have our interview today i just i was quickly scanning through some of the episodes so i could try and get my head wrapped around memory of them and uh, a lot of them, like as soon as I even read the title, I was like, oh, wow, I remember this and that and read the breakdown or the, you know, the writer or the director. And there was a lot of good things in that show. There was a lot of potential. Um, it was dark. You know, there were there were some um, it, it was a very dark show in a lot of ways. But I mean, comparatively, that Battlestar, you know, I, I you could argue that Battlestar was was darker. Um, I think Joss Whedon was ahead of his time, as usual. He often is. It really is a crime that show didn't get at least a third season. I am happy that Fox didn't shit the bed completely and pull the plug on after the first season. They allowed Joss to finish the second season. And and as a result, you know, we have 27 episodes or whatever there are. And that's that is a good thing. But I, I think many of us were really hopeful that um, uh, there could have been a little bit more. That said, I think the writers and the creators, I think Joss and um, Marissa Tancherone and Jed, her, 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 her husband, uh, I think mm -hmm. everybody, Tim and Jane and everybody did an incredible job of wrapping up that second season in an incredible way when they were only given notice, I think maybe six hours, six episodes before we were supposed to be done. Six episodes in, into the second season, I think it was when Joss officially found out. I still remember him coming on set in the middle of the scene and, um, as soon as we finished uh, him making the announcement. So that's devastating. But in all honesty, from the minute 
there was so much hype about the show. Once we started cannibalizing the brilliant pilot, the original pilot that Joss shot, I knew we were in trouble. And that was, you got to understand what a head trip that is. I came out of a show, Battlestar Galactica. They actually released me to go down to LA to shoot the pilot, right? I was still doing mm. Battlestar. Um, there was so much hype leading up to Dollhouse. It was one of the biggest things in the press at the time. Constantly, constantly articles about Joss Whedon's coming back to Fox, Joss Whedon's new show. Everybody knows what Nat said, what a brilliant creator Joss is. And there was so much hype about it. They were, you know, for the longest time, it was like, we're going to open for 24, which was the biggest show in the world at the time. I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, wow, this is just getting so big. And then it quickly started turning and changing. And then, you know, it wasn't as good and it was being moved around. And then we shot the pilot. And before you know it, you know, it, we went from opening to 24 to like the death slot on Friday, uh, Friday night. Um, so for an actor coming out of the gates, I was brimming with confidence and couldn't wait to film. And then once we started filming and you felt the tension and you felt the sort of insecurity and I, I felt like I could sense in Joss that things weren't going as he was promised early on. That was, that was hard not to stress about. And then by the time we started shooting and, like I said, we cannibalized that first episode and moved around the order of everything. Like in the original pilot, I, I met Echo um, in the first episode. And then yep. when we started shooting the series, it changed to, you know, the third or fourth episode or whatever it was. It's very difficult for an actor to work in those circumstances because you're concerned about the plug being pulled on the show right away. So in a very long-winded way, it wasn't so devastating to get that news in the second season, at mm. least for me. I, I'd almost been expecting it. It was, it made me very sad. But at the same time, I was like, okay, you know what? I've got an opportunity here to enjoy the hell out of these people, these incredible actors and creators and everyone on this crew for the next six episodes or next seven episodes. So I made a point of literally getting rid of that stress that I'd been carrying around about the show being canceled because now that I knew it was definitive, but we mm -hmm. had an end point. I could just enjoy the rest of the time that we had. And I, I really made a point of doing that. And I really try to encourage the, some of the younger actors the, who have, you know, their first significant series to do the same. And I think for the most part, we all did. We really, we really made a point of enjoying our time together because, uh, you know, we knew that was it. Well, that's a great mindset to have. I think, I think that was a good attitude, a good mindset. And yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you have an incredibly impressive IMDb resume. There's a lot of real huge fan favorite shows on there. Two particular loves of mine are the two we have mentioned about 10 times each so far in the first five minutes of this interview, Dollhouse and BSG. Two huge genre fan favorites, but very different outlooks, very different scopes. What was it like working on each of the different sets? And were there are all sets generally the same or were there marked differences between you know working on a Joss feature and working on a Ronald D. Moore feature? Yeah, you know, the, there's obviously similarities across the board, but there's many, it's it's different on every set. The unfortunate truth is sometimes you go on a show, so much of the attitude, the attitude on set is is set by the leads. If you don't have happy leads, uh, maybe, maybe your two leads don't like working together. I've worked on sets like that on a very successful show where the two leads didn't get along. That's that's difficult for any guest star actor or someone who's coming coming on and playing a supporting uh, role to deal with. It's it's hard for the whole crew. The attitude is set by the lead actor. That's why going back to Eddie, for instance, Eddie and Mary, they were brilliant. Every day they were positive. They were on point. They're ready to work. They're both workaholics, and uh, you know, just just such humble, confident yet humble human beings. And they really taught us the right way to do it. Dollhouse, you got to understand, by the time we got to the end of the series, the last couple seasons of Battlestar were so good. There was such excellent writing. The young actors and everybody really found their groove. It was such a collaborative experience. Whenever we had one of our our regular directors come in or even Ron come in and do an episode, uh, it was just such an exciting time. We would all communicate. We were all open to each other's suggestions and ideas, and you were allowed to take a risk. And oftentimes it was it was it was the right choice, and they would use that. It was it was such a it was such an incredible experience to work uh, so seamlessly. Uh, it's really hard to 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 match that. 
and again, going back to, to dollhouse, we had some, you know, um, we had some incredible veterans on that too. Olivia and uh, Harry both are are vets, both incredibly talented, massive resumes, thespians, experienced film and television actors. They've done it all. It's great having veterans like that. You know, there's a reason that you have the vets on shows often. They they bring uh, strength to a show that can calm maybe some of the younger cast who might be dealing with the many challenges of ego and um, the the superficiality and unfortunate aspects of our business that are often encouraged uh, by the wrong types and will ultimately end up eroding any um, uh, positive like it's 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 really easy um, in this business to get caught up in um, your celebrity and the success of your own show and I think younger actors unfortunately have the hardest time with it and one of the biggest falls they have is when that that success and that attitude is 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 dealt its humble pie and it's suddenly gone and you're not the special person you thought you were. Um, and that's what veteran actors do. They bring that to the table and they can remind you how hard this business is. Eddie used to always do this thing to us. He'd, and he say, I'd always give him shit about it. I mean like, Eddie, don't, don't curse the rest of my career, but he'd be like, this will probably be the best thing you ever do. <laughs> he wanted to remind us and he wasn't saying it in a condescending way. He really wasn't. He, that's how proud he was of Battlestar and how, he really felt, and he said this from the beginning too, he said, this piece of art will last the test of time. This will be talked about 20 years from now. So in that aspect, we may have took it that way and we may have felt, and I did at times, I'm like, Eddie, you're cursing, you know, everything I might do after this. And he goes, no, you just listen to me. Realize and treat it that way. Appreciate every single day. Appreciate the the art that we're doing, the paychecks that you're getting, but realize there's going to be tough times at, after this. And, and um it won't be as good as this. I've gone off on a tangent. What was the original question? That was a pretty perfect <laughs> answer, actually. You, you basically nailed it. I was asking what the differences were like on the sets between the two shows. So let me talk about Dollhouse briefly. I already alluded to this. I already talked about this briefly. But, you know, listen, oftentimes when you start a show, you're not coming in super confident knowing it's going to be a guaranteed success unless it's, you know, say one of the big networks, you know, uh, one of the streaming networks in particular, HBO, you know, it's an incredible piece of art or Netflix or something like that. Maybe you go in and you you know that you're guaranteed 13 episodes. You're guaranteed a first se- a season. Or if you're guaranteed a certain number of episodes, then it releases the actor and the creators a little bit to just do their work and not worry about the um, show being canceled. Like I said, with Dollhouse, Dollhouse we, we didn't come out of the gates well. In the beginning, it, it, it sounded like we were going to be, be the next biggest thing. And Joss, if, I think if he was allowed to do his thing, it might have been. But it wasn't the case. So... After we cannibalized that first episode, there was a lot of insecurity on the set. And maybe I'm talking more personally, um, but I was definitely very worried about whether the show was going to be canceled or not. Constantly in that first season. And I know other people were. I know the powers that be were. I'd, I'd done enough. I'd had enough experience with Battlestar, even though the most, for the most part it was quite good, to know that um, that things weren't exactly great. So there were a lot of beautiful things on Dollhouse. You know, I really... I really like Eliza. She's a no bullshit person. She, you know, she's a, she's a, she's been, she's been a significant celebrity since she was a kid. You got to have some tough skin to have been in the business as long as her. And, um, she's a no bullshit girl. And I really appreciate about that about Eliza. And she works her ass off. She was not only, you know, our lead actor, she was also a producer. So she was wearing a number of hats and she, she had, uh, let's be honest, you know, um, acting wise that, that you'd be hard pressed to find, many actors who could have done the task that Joss had given her to play multiple characters each and like sometimes in, in one episode, um, uh, different accents, different backgrounds, different people. It's, it takes a talented actor to do that. And she was given a huge task and she worked her ass off at it. You know, Olivia was fantastic. Always. She was one of those anchors. Harry was one of those anchors also. I, and again, I'm speaking from my own opinion, but I don't know if the, the, the relationship between the network and the powers that be there and Joss was as cohesive or as good as we we could have hoped for and as a result there was there were some episodes that weren't as strong as others that's always the case with any show battlestar had a lot of misses too but you know we it was definitely a different working environment um i'm so grateful for it then and i love that i got to work with joss whedon he's one of the most brilliant creators out there and joss and i socially outside of of um working really had a great time together whether we were just breaking bread and drinking wine and having wonderful food or discussing books or laughing together or 
anyone who knows Josh, we well knows he loves to dance. Um, you know, <laughs> did New York Comic Con together, and Josh and I hit the town afterwards with a few other people involved with the show and the network, and we, uh, you know, we spent the night dancing a couple times, and it was just great. I love Josh's spirit when he's outside of his work and he's just allowed to be free and express himself in that way. And he's a fantastic human being, man. I miss him. I, I haven't really spent any time or seen seen him significantly in 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 quite some years i I didn't realize until this very moment but there is nothing in this world i need to see more than joss whedon dancing i I need (laughs) and that needs to be an image that's in my mind so thank you very much for giving me that's that goal he dances his ass off man he dances like nobody's watching which is the way you should do it and that takes huge balls and joss has it (laughs) we have a question from a patreon supporter her name's precious she says, hi, how are you doing, Timo, and everybody else on the podcast? I enjoyed you on Battlestar Galactica and Dollhouse, and it was always a pleasant surprise when I would see you pop up on a couple of my Netflix shows, such as Simon Crocker on Haven and Jim Martin in Continuum. And her question is, looking back on your career, is there anything that you would still like to do, and what are your dreams going forward? Um, well, those are good questions, Precious. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's many things I want to do. I'm an actor. There's many, many different roles I want to play. I want to do everything. I want to challenge myself and do it all. There's many, uh, you know, uh, anyone who knows me, who's, who's truly a fan and they've heard some of my interviews or they've met me, um, they know that uh, I've got a whole lot of geek in me, too. I mm-hmm. I grew up, I was a sci-fi buff, man. I, I, I loved, you know, it's just my generation too, man. I loved my Star Wars. I remember the original, I was very, very young, but I remember the original um, Battlestar, the, you know, the short two seasons that it was on television. I had, I had some of the action figures. I was obsessed with, with Star Wars as a kid. I had so many of the action figures. I used to play with them all the time. There's so many different things I want to do still. Um, you know, I used to be kind of obsessed with the uh, the paranormal and the supernatural when I was a kid also. I used to, I remember having this book. I can't remember. I think it was called Into the Unknown. And it was a, it was a, a time book. And it was this huge thing, probably about 900 pages. And it had, I, it was like a Bible to me. I just, I constantly, when I was bored, when I was a kid, would read through it. And it had all these supernatural paranormal stories. Like, you know, the, you know, people with parasite twins and, and, uh, you know, the uh, the werewolves and, and, and vampires and, and Ogopogo and the Loch Ness Monster and, and Bigfoot and Sasquatch and Yeti and and, um, you know, just all these all these all these paranormal stories from all over the planet. And I was obsessed. I used to have them memorized. Like, you know, if anybody ever mentioned something like that, I'd, I'd give them sort of encyclopedic answers that I had from my little Bible that I used to always read. So I've always wanted to play um you know, a vampire or more a, a werewolf. I used to always play when I was a kid with my friends. We used to, you got to understand, I grew up in the Yukon. I had forest and forest and we used to just run through the woods wild when we were kids. I haven't been given the opportunity yet. So I'm putting that out to the universe that hopefully that works out. On that, I've actually read a script recently by a indigenous writer from Vancouver and uh, it has to do with one of those two things I just discussed. I won't say which. And uh, if all things, well, all things aren't going well, obviously, who knows when this is going to be delayed to. But I've agreed to be a part of this project. And it's an excellent film script. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, we all come out of this at some point uh, sooner than later. And I, I can work on that project because it'll definitely fulfill one of those, um, knock one of those things off the bucket list. But dreams going forward. <laughs> I definitely want to direct. I've been writing, uh, working on two different screenplays. One in particular is uh, is a uh, story of, uh, from my mother's uh, childhood. Um, she's a residential school survivor, and um, I'm uh, I'm working on that and uh, adapting that story into a screenplay. And I would love to shoot that in the next couple of years, direct that, and, and film that. And then I've got another one, which is a, a thriller set in the Yukon, also. Um, so yeah, those are some of my aspirations. Directing is, is definitely one of them. And, and of course to continue acting, I love acting and, uh, yeah, you know, and, uh, just being a, a good father and, uh, continuing with my martial arts and, uh, continuing to learn and, and just grow as a human being. Uh, there's a, there's a huge opportunity for a lot of us right now being holed up in our homes to really reconnect with our, our children and our families again and drop in and be more present. 
I've personally been taking the biggest break I've I have in in years and years from from um, from the phone from the internet. I'm just not on it all day because I've got too much work to do around here, and it's good. It's um, I check in on the news and I, I I read what's relevant at the end of the day so that I'm not uh, I'm not in the dark. But I'm I'm not obsessing over this because I can't. There's not much I can do about it. I'm in control of the situation here with my family, and uh, during the day I'm I'm really um, realizing how much of a uh, a beautiful thing, regardless of the, the the horrible circumstances with with the COVID on the side, but a beautiful opportunity we have to really um, connect and be present with our friends and our family and our loved ones again. And I think everyone should really realize that and take advantage of this because the kids and your loved ones and yourself, we're never going to forget this. If we get through this, okay, we're never going to forget this time. So run with it. Do you like what you hear on the Nevers podcast? Care to share your opinion? If you do, then consider leaving a review for the show. Your review helps us to reach new listeners and let us know how we're doing. Go on. It only takes a minute. All right. So we've just started a revisit of Dollhouse and we're doing that for our Patreon supporters. Were you living in Canada at the time that you auditioned for Dollhouse? Uh, yes, I was because I was filming Battlestar. I was in my 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 city of uh, Vancouver and where we filmed Battlestar. They released me to go down and do the test. Uh, I did the test in L.A. at Fox Studios. Yeah, and can you recall the audition process? What was it like? Was it intense or drawn out? Were there a lot of callbacks? No, no, it, it wasn't like that for me. Um, and I say this with all humility. Joss apparently had his eye on me because he was a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica. He wanted me for the role. Um, I think if it was his choice, he would have given it to me, but the network insisted that I test. So I tested against, I believe there were two or three different individuals. I went down. It was like, if you've talked to actors about a, a network test, uh, unless they are a, a vampire sociopath, it <laughs> is impossible not to be sweating bullets at a test. A test, there's so much riding on it. It is a potentially life-changing experience. Uh, you're potentially booking a series that will change your life, pay you very well. Work with incredible individuals. You're, you're that everything is riding on that test. That's the final test, and you got to understand. You're sitting in a room, looking at your competition, staring at each other as you each go up to take your crack at it. And in the room is a room full of producers, execs, and uh, you know the creators of the show. So it's it's incredibly intimidating. I went in very confident, very excited to do it. I did everything I could to prepare beforehand. I'm a big meditator doing all that stuff. That said, when I got in there and I saw Eliza and I hadn't met her yet um, and I saw Joss and I saw the other guys, I, I, uh, I was, I was, I was nervous. It's, you can't not be, it's part of it. And uh, I went in and Joss was filming it himself and directing it and he did these scenes and he filmed it and was directing me. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, I, in all honesty, I was, I was very nervous. I, I, um, I don't remember if it went as well as I thought it did, but uh, that ultimately doesn't matter because I ended up getting it anyway. Goss <laughs> was rooting for me, had his eye on me. He wanted me for the role, and uh, I got the role. So I'm, I'm very, uh, very grateful for that. I'm just curious. Um, during that audition process, when Joss was directing you, was there ever a direction that he gave that you kind of had to like think for a few seconds or maybe you didn't agree with or – or was it just kind of smooth when he was directing you? Yeah, no, I, I remember that. I, you see, the thing is, I came in with very specific choices, and I made some some choices uh, that may have been a, a little too in one direction. And this is the unfortunate thing, because if I was able to have a conversation with Joss before that, we could have been on the same page somewhat, or I could have been more open to... Sometimes when somebody says something to you, it gives you direction, it takes time to process it. You usually don't have that during a test. A test often is... Go up, take your one shot at it. If you're a veteran actor, you know that you're going to say, even if, if you have a little screw up, you're going to go again. You're going to say, hey, sorry, let's start over. Do you know what I'm saying? A lot of that's advice for all the young actors out there. Uh, you know, maybe not always given that liberty during a test, but the audition process, take your time. It's your time in the room. If you screw up, take a breath, start again. It's your time. It's your time. Don't screw it up. Don't go and stumble over one word and just have a nervous breakdown and say, that's it. I lost the gig. Take, take your time, take a breath. The thing is with Joss, I made some uh, very strong choices about how angry and messed up um, Paul was. 
as a result of his divorce and all these things. And Jaws was trying to bring me in the other direction somewhat. And I just wish that I'd had the opportunity to talk to him again. You know, he was giving me direction. And it took me a couple minutes to process it. But Eliza was, you know, one thing I remember about her during the test, she was just so kind and, and present and like really warm. She made a real, she made real effort. I think cause she's such a veteran and having been in the business so long, she knows the nerves that come with it and everything involved. And she made real effort to make me comfortable. And we just kind of were joking and, and, um, and, uh, smiling and having a good time, uh, not soon into it, which really helped me. Uh, and I really appreciate that from her. That was, uh, was very thoughtful and giving, and giving uh, of her. We asked our Twitter followers if they had any questions for you and they did. So Isaac, Bar David asked, was just regularly on set while you were shooting Dollhouse? Yeah, he was, you know, especially the first season. He was there a lot, especially when he was directing. I spoke on this before, but I always found it fascinating because Joss, no, he's such a veteran. He's written so many hours of television. He knows exactly what he wants and how to get it. And if it, it, the problem with Joss's stuff is if you're not really familiar with it, you might make the mistake of trying to deviate from it a little bit, throwing in an extra word, trying to make it your own. Whereas Josh is such a fantastic writer, his humor, his ability to blend, uh, you know, say quite heavy tones and and, and uh, at the same time, simultaneously do uh, couple it with, you know, some levity and humor and wit. Uh, there's very few writers who do it like Josh. He's a very specific style. But because he's so good at it, don't deviate from the from the excellent writing. It's there for you. It's kind of obvious. Just go with the way he's written it. When you try and make it too much your own, which I was making the mistake of sometimes in the beginning, uh, it's more difficult. <laughs> it's more <laughs> difficult. And I saw some other actors, guest actors, come on the show and try and do the same thing. And they struggled. And Joss, you know, very uh, to the point would tell them, just read it the way it is. <laughs> and when writing is exceptional, um, it makes our job as actors good. Uh, it makes it easy, I should say. Sorry. Uh, it's just you just you just. You go with it. You know, any actor will tell you when there's fantastic writing, it's it's the easiest thing in the world for us. It's 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 the best. It was good. Joss was he was there. He's ever present. And he's such a uh, he's such a workhorse that, you know, when he was done directing the scene, he'd be if we were on location, he'd be you'd see him pacing in another room where he got a little bit of privacy and he was already writing the next episode in his head. That's incredible. I love hearing uh, stories about what Joss is like in real life and on the show. And yeah, you're right. It's a. He just he works in a, in a very Joss way, and I love it so much. Um, my next question is with regards to kind of the script and the story arcs. Like, how much ahead of time were you aware of? Speaking, you know, I just actually rewatched the episode called "The Attic," which is later in season two. Where <laughs> spoiler alert. Unfortunately, Paul gets turned into a doll that has a doll imprint. And was that Tim? Tim's episode? Tim Minear? That was Tim's I episode, think, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. But it's like you're you're acting. And in that episode, like Paul's reaction when he finds out he has been turned into the exact thing that he's been fighting against this whole time was is just one of my most emotional moments of watching a Joss Whedon show. So how far in advance did you know about these different arcs and what, where Dollhouse was going to take Paul as a, as a character? Like, was that devastating for you as well? No, thank you for that. You know, uh, Tim, Tim, Tim did the, uh, the respectful thing of uh, giving me a call <laughs> beforehand and said, listen, <laughs> uh, you're basically going to get lobotomized, but we're not killing you. <laughs> So he gave me the call and he, he let me know that you're going to, you know, this is what's happening. This is what we're planning. This is the arc. You're not going to die. You're going to come back from this, but it's going to be, it's going to be a grind. It's going to be a, I'm, I'm writing you some heavy stuff. Um, when you come out of this, um, it was good to hear that because if I had just gone and read the episode, I'd be like, Oh shit, I think I'm, that's the end of Paul Ballard maybe. Um, but Tim, Tim, Tim was, man, I wish I, God, I just, I really wish I had the opportunity to work with Tim again. I really hope it happens down the road because he he's fantastic. He's such a talent and he worked with Joss for years. A lot of a lot of our main writers were writers that Joss had worked with for years and they're all in their own right just brilliant. And Tim was fantastic as a director too. I really really liked working with him. 
I, I only wish with some of them again, you know, and not pining for the past. It is what it is. I'm grateful that the show lasted as long as it did. But the the beautiful experience I had with Battlestar working season to season with directors over and over again, you did develop a specific relationship with each of them in their own way because everybody works in their own way. But they begin to know how you work and you bring out the best in each other. I was, you know, I was invested in the show. I was I, those were those were big, big things that were happening to Paul and Echo and 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 Melly in November. And those were big drops. And I remember reading them just if anything as a fan, I, I was excited, you know, knowing that I wasn't gonna be killed off. I was just yeah. excited. I'm game for anything as an actor. I'm I came from Battlestar Galactica, man. You know, this is a show where, you know, I lost my child. I you know, humanity was destroyed. Billions of people were killed. I've been through it. I've been through the dark part. It doesn't get any darker than Battlestar. So uh, as an actor, I'm all about that stuff. Let's let's do it. Drag me through the mud, man. Let's let's challenge me as an actor. I want to go there. So Tim, when he told me that I, I was uh, I was excited. I was uh, I was emotional about it. But I was I was just looking forward to the future episodes where I would be able to, you know, take on that that task of playing Paul when he's he's been re-imprinted with his own personality you know it's it's not even truly him or is it him you know these are some of the mm. the questions that I grappled with on the show and it was that, that stuff was awesome man I loved it oh and you did such a fantastic job again thank you it's incredible incredible work can I just say something really quick and this is no one's fault I haven't seen all of Dollhouse yet so I am psyched uh oh I'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry I spoiled that for you. Ugh, that's the Tamo. The whole point of us revisiting Dollhouse, well, one of it, like re we're revisiting because it's such a, a severely underrated Joss Whedon show that nobody talks about, and it's brilliant. Um, but Gina hasn't seen it, so we're revisiting it episode at each episode at a time for our Patreon supporters. So now I just big old spoiled it for her. So that's great. How dare you, Gina? How dare I you? <laughs> I know. I deserved it. Okay. <laughs> but we, uh, speaking of our Patreon supporters, we ha have a letter now from Berger Halverson. Who says, uh, Mr. Pennicott, you are super cool for doing this. I think it takes a lot of guts to allow oneself to be interviewed by these independent fan podcasts, and it's deeply appreciated. To what extent do you see Paul as a hero who wants to defeat a great evil? And to what extent is he a recent divorcee with a chip on his shoulder, dreaming of winning the damsel and showing up his colleagues? To me, it's this tension that elevates Paul into a truly interesting and dynamic character. I mean, those are both excellent points, and I think they, they both have merit. I think he's a combination of both. Um, I, I made some very specific choices about Paul in the beginning, like I said. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those actors, I, you know, because I was only given so much by Joss because we were, we were very quickly, I was released from Battlestar to go film this pilot. Joss and I couldn't talk for hours at length about Paul specifically. Even though we did discuss things, you know, I, I did what any actor does. I filled in the holes history where he grew up his past i made him i chose that paul like many young men his age maybe someone who's gone into law enforcement or what have you he because as a result of very much having a chip on his shoulder and being an angry divorcee he's very much a lone wolf he's one of those guys who gets obsessed with something He's also not a quitter. We see that. And Joss wrote to that in uh, Man on the Street. We, we, we really get a good sense of who, who Paul, Ballard, Paul Ballard is in, in Man on the Street. There's no quit in this guy. He's one of those guys. And those are the scary ones. I can tell you from my martial arts experience, sometimes you're sparring someone and they may not be as skilled as you. But there's nothing scarier than fighting with someone, laying your best stuff on them, putting them down, and then they just get up again and they keep coming back. And you're getting more and more tired. And I made that choice about Paul. He's one of those guys. There's no quit in him. He's not big. It's not bravado. I, I, I don't believe Paul was one of those ones. He's too much of a swinging dick who's who's constantly, you know, he's looking for the accolades of his of, of you know, his 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 fellow FBI. Um, it's not so much about that with him. He 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 he's a very he's a very smart guy, but it, his fault and this is probably what was the result of his, his divorce was that 
once he gets obsessed on something, he can think about nothing else. And it's to the detriment of his relationships and his own personal life and anything other than that. He becomes zero focused on it. And he's, it's almost an addictive personality. And there's no quitting him. He will not stop when he gets on something. And this one something happened to be the dollhouse and he was going to get to the bottom of it. So I think her points are are very valid. And it is a combination of that. But I, I leaned away from, you know, Paul really needing to show everybody up and prove them wrong. There would definitely be that. There's definitely an element of that. There was a part of that. He wanted to prove he wanted to be like like anything. If you know the truth and you want people to know and you're you're the only one who's who's thinking one way and everybody else, the masses are are thinking the opposite. Of course, there's an element of you wanting to prove them wrong and wanting to show them the truth. But ultimately, it was based in him wanting to to take down the dollhouse, to correct this wrong, this evil thing, this human trafficking. He was obsessed with it. And I, I can't remember now. I'd love to find my notes, the backstory that I made. But I made a specific choice about Paul, um, as I remember it, having a sister um, or a loved one who who was affected by human trafficking in some way. So it was very, very, very personal for him. I can't remember the choice, whether she had died when he was young, she had gotten addicted to drugs. She had a boyfriend who got her messed up. Um, um, you know, maybe she ended up, uh, um, in prostitution or something, but it was something that affected him so deeply. And that's part of the reason he was hell bent and obsessed on taking down the dollhouse. And he took it so personally. Okay, that adds that adds kind of a, a whole new angle. I'm almost just here hearing sort of your thoughts behind the character. It's, it's put a whole new spin on sort of how I see his performance, and it's going to be really fun watching the show through now for Patreon. It's going to be a fun experience. So thank you so much for explaining a bit more about your thoughts there. So for me as a Joss Whedon fan, he, I feel like a lot of his work is timeless because he discusses and approaches themes in humanity and in our day-to-day lives that, you know, are just ever, ever reoccurring and they'll never, you know, he doesn't follow trends is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't follow trends, which makes his work timeless. That's more articulate. So, um, and Dollhouse, uh, what, besides like the brilliant acting and writing and everything, there's themes in it that I find fascinating. So, you know, themes of identity, consent, human trafficking, even perhaps the presence of souls. So how do you feel about what the show was presenting then as, you know, compared to now, 10 years later? Like, do you think it still stands up? Is it still relevant? Is there any differences? How do you feel about that? Well, it absolutely still stands up. Look at it. I mean, you know, if anything, like you said, Joss is, Joss is always going against trends. He's doing his own thing. And that's why his shows stand the test of time, too. He, this show was ahead of its time. How many shows have taken similar um, ideas as Joss and, and been quite successful and relevant as of late? Like even, you know, and I'm not saying this writer took any influence from Joss Whedon, but it's become quite popular. The idea I did a show recently, Altered Carbon. Uh, by the brilliant, uh, based on the brilliant uh, Scottish writer, um, and there I read the first two books, and it's fantastic. But that's about you know, that's the same idea. It's 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 a very plausible future. And I remember a lot of people were like, "Come on, people aren't going to download what have you." But you look at how fast we're moving with technology, man. It is absolutely plausible that this will be an aspect of our future. One of my favorite writers is William Gibson. Oh. He was writing about this many, many years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. He was writing about, like, I remember, uh, I can't remember, it might have been an Iduro, uh, one of his books, but like Japanese corporations, when when the head of the corporation would pass away, they'd have a, uh, you know, a digital version of him uploaded to a box and you would go and different new, new you know, younger um, uh, CEOs of the company could go and confer with the um, the since passed on um, older CEOs and uh, discuss business matters and, and company related matters because there was a there was a digital uploaded version that was you know ninety percent accurate to who the person was still there. So these ideas have been played around with, but it, when when it came out in Dollhouse, a lot of people were like, oh, that's too far-fetched. I don't believe in all that. And now it's such a common thing, like uh, Altered Carbon. I mean, look at it. It's, you know, downloading into different sleeves. Joss was talking about this and doing doing a show that was, again, just ahead of its time. And if he was talking on, you know, Joss always talks about, you know, there's, there's issues in here. There's, you know, that that are dear to him. The, he was He was also making some very 
important social and political commentary, you know, talking human trafficking then and now is still a massive, massive issue. It's horrible. And, and unfortunately, looking at the situation we're in now and even before this COVID thing arrived, you've got large, large numbers of people on the planet fleeing their their home countries because they have nowhere else to go. And uh, this is going to be an issue that doesn't change. It's going to get much worse, if anything. Yeah, I mean, Joss, Joss was on point there. He touched on many different issues. You talked about the soul. You know, this is the soul is a, is a common theme in, in most religions, depending on, uh, irregardless of your, your political faith um, or spirituality, you know, uh, the idea of the soul is, is common to all of humanity. And, and uh, I, I love what he had to say about it. It's not something that can be extinguished. Um, you know, coming from my own background, we believe that, uh, you know, not just soul, but spirit, there's, there's, there's energy and life in every, everything, you know, it has to change. Our attitude has to change. We have to moving forward. I think there's some huge lessons that we can learn from this virus in the time that we're having at home. And I hope that us and the Western nations and all of us, all of humanity really, really, really take a huge lesson in, in, in how wasteful we are and we try to preserve more and we try to moving forward. We, we think more environmentally and, uh, and long-term and, 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 and start instituting practices that are safer for us in the future of the planet and for our children. Number one, it, it feels a little frivolous to ask this now after you've just given this beautiful, passionate speech about how we need to save the world. But, um, if you could imprint yourself with any one skill so that you could master it, what would it be and why? I mean, off the top of the head, because I've, I've been asked this question before, I, I probably just musically, I, I, it'd be amazing to be an incredible musician who could play multiple in- instruments. You know, I think that would be fast. I've always been fascinated by my friends. I have many friends who are musicians and, and uh, I think it's just an incredible skill, man. I, I'd love to be able to make music like that um and to play multiple instruments uh, it's you know obviously i can learn um but i'm a busy guy and i'm constantly you know it's hard enough to focus on my own passions that i have and and as of late i've been trying to focus on the you know things that are really important to me moving forward which is writing and and i've got a ton to learn there i'm by no means a natural writer um and eventually i want to get into directing but i think being able to play and write music and, and play different different uh uh, instruments would be an incredible skill very good answer there and um fun fact just um I know, i'm a huge fan of william gibson as well uh, i must have read neuromancer more times than i can remember and anyone out there if you ever if, if you've ever used the term cyberspace he invented that word neuromancer is the first recorded usage of the word cyberspace which is pretty cool he's he's he's, he's often given that credit and a lot of people don't realize that when i tell them that fact but he's he's still to this day it, is a true fan too. It's it's amazing to watch a writer's skill, like like any artist, develop over the years. To to read Neuromancer and to read one of his latest works, to see the progression of his art form and how good of a writer he is now. Mm. He was incredibly talented then, but how good he is now, <sighs> I find that I find that Williams just constantly getting better. Mm. He, I love his work, and I'm I'm actually behind. I'm, I'm behind in the last couple of books, and I I can't wait to read them. Uh, as soon as I have the time, I'm going to get into them and I'm really going to be present and enjoy them and try not to rush through them. That's my problem with William, G- William Gibson books. I uh, I just, uh, like any good reading, you know, you, do, you don't want to put the book down. Okay, so since I, I'm the resident horror fan of this group and I love horror movies and everything horror related, so of course you had a small role of Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat my new favorite horror anthology that's all spooky because it's based around Halloween. So of course I had to ask about working with Michael Doherty and how did that come about? And how do you feel about the horror genre? Man, listen, you know, I was, I'm, I'm a kid who grew up, grew up in the eighties. So (laughs) I had no choice but to take in, like I took in a lot of horror. Um, Most of the, anyone in my generation did, we just did because it was, it was just, it was the most popular film genre of the time arguably like you know even the action films back then were so gratuitous and their violence and everything in the 80s was, <laughs> i'm not a huge horror fan i do like uh specific stuff um um you know trick-or-treat is brilliant 
it, the, the biggest shame with that is it took, you know, two, three years before it even came out. Uh, I don't know the specifics. There was an argument between the studio and the and uh, a couple of the studios who were producing it. Uh, I've never quite understood what happened there, but they purposely delayed bringing out the film. And I think if it had come out in a timely manner, we would have had a second one, maybe even a third. And I think it would have been massive. I think it would have been a huge. It already is a cult classic. It's it's amazing. It's it's enjoyed a lot of success, but it would have been a lot more popular. Um, it came out way after the fact, and unfortunately, it wasn't able to get the proper uh, advertising and marketing train that it that it deserved. Uh, but anyone who's seen it loves it. I enjoyed working on it very much. I was doing Battlestar Galactica at the time. Mike Doherty gave me an audition for it. Mike was a huge Battlestar fan. We became friends after that. Um, kept in contact. I always made a point of uh, seeing Mike when I was down in L.A. We've unfortunately kind of lost touch a bit. He, uh, the last time he came to Vancouver, I was just swamped with family and things, and I couldn't see him. And uh, it's too bad because I, I miss him, and I know he's been doing great things. You know, uh, It's amazing the projects he's working on, Godzilla. and Mike is incredibly talented himself, very bright, and he's got a devilish, creative, dark little mind. And Mike will be the first one to tell you. And he's a fantastic artist himself. Yeah, he's Doherty's a true, true talent. Uh, I miss him. I hope I get to work with him again and not even work with him. I just hope I get to break bread and see him again. Chief, it's Muay Thai rules. I'm down. I, I'd be game for it. Okay, Tom. So before you plug your latest project, we have to ask, since we are the Nevers podcast, do you think... And is there any chance that you might be making an appearance in Joss Whedon's new HBO show, The Nevers? Hey, you never know, man. You never know. Joss has a habit of uh, sometimes bringing back uh, some of his past actors. I would absolutely be honored to work with Joss again in any capacity. I read briefly about the new show, and it sounds amazing. Um, I'm a huge Joss Whedon fan. Again, if the right role comes along, if Joss writes it for me, I will be on the plane the next day. And I promise you, I'll give you the best work that I've ever done. Because um, one thing that I like to think, too, after doing it this this many years, I've learned a lot about this craft and a lot more. And if I could have talked to a younger version of myself and given myself some of the, uh, you know, the, the wisdom that I have now, I, I would have helped myself with uh, some of the angst and some of the stress that we go through when we're, or, you know, in the, the beginning parts of our career. I'm now at a point where, because I've been doing it so long, I, I truly... I'm out of my own way. I feel like I'm doing the best work I ever have. I've gone back to class. I'm studying with professional actors again and just and just uh, just consistently acting again, uh, even outside of auditions and, and professional work, which is something I got away from from a long time and to my detriment, um, to the detriment of my own work. And it's so good to be back there and just playing and, and working my craft and challenging myself all the time. And and uh, because of it, there's been uh, some really cool roles that have come about as of late. And um, you know, I'm really hoping to do more comedy. Anybody who knows me well knows that I I'm um, I enjoy it. I really enjoy the character work when I've when I've been given the opportunity. You know, I I really wish uh, there would have been more opportunity with Altered Carmen to uh, to play uh, Dimitri Moore. That was one of the coolest characters that I was able to sink my teeth in. But again, it was only brief in two episodes, but that was awesome. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to all the work down the road and, uh, I would love to work with Joss again. Of course, he's a man is a brilliant man. And, uh, I wish everyone on that show much success. I'm sure it's going to be a massive hit. Well, we're definitely, we definitely think so. And we're hoping so we really can't wait to, to watch it. So what are you working on right now that you can actually talk about that you want to plug? Um, I just started a movie. We got one day into production and we got shut down, of course, because of, uh, right. because of COVID. And, uh, that was across the board. I had a number of friends who would just come up to Vancouver from LA and we're starting new shows and everything, the plugs got pulled or things are delayed and they're, they're pushed. Two movies that I was in, in the last couple of years that haven't been released yet, um, are supposed to come out. We'll see what's happening again. Everything's being pushed. One that I was very proud of that uh, I did. Um, it's called Two Hearts. It was a wonderful film. I also had the opportunity to work with uh, Eddie almost again as a director. Wonderful cast. Martin Sheen, Alfred Molina. Just a loaded cast. I think Mary even may have done a role. Um, but The Devil Has a Name. Fantastic film. Look it up. That has just been doing the festival circuit, and I think that's finally going to come out. 
Um, I also did um, a movie at Christmas time called The Last Victim. That should be coming out. Who knows? There's all these movies that I've done that are we're not going <laughs> to we're truly not going to know where they're going to come out. But uh, I will be doing uh, the film that I did a day of was is called uh, Practice to Deceive. We'll see what happens with that. Hopefully it doesn't get shut down completely and we're able to come back to that. Okay, so where can people follow you online if they're not already? Um, please follow me on Twitter. Twitter's uh, probably, the, out of social media, it's probably the thing, the one thing that I use the most, and that's at uh, Tom O'Panikit. And then, of um, you know, when I do use Instagram, I don't use it enough. I'm always getting shit about that. But there's only so much you can do in a day. Uh, I wish I was better at it. And that's um, the opposite. You can follow me at, at Panikit Tomo on uh on uh, instagram so yeah twitter and instagram that's the way to go excellent okay and that's it thank you so so much that was hugely insightful inspiring moving and amazing so thank you so so much again yeah, listen you guys i'm sending everybody love out there keep your head straight um hopefully we're going to figure this thing out sooner than later but uh, like i said there's a real opportunity there you know i keep seeing memes and people um, you know, I'm hearing about it at the end of the night, my partner and my mom and my family are showing me all these things Are you people are like, oh, I had four naps today and read two books and done all this. For those of you who have that much time and if you've got lo- loved ones around, you know, really do those things, all those things that are on the list. Like, read those books, uh, learn that new skill, take up that language. But number one, drop in with the family, man. Put down the phones, put down the computer, the technology. There's a real, real, real precious opportunity here to spend some time with your significant loved ones and be present like we haven't been in years because um, we're constantly distracted by the technology, let's be honest. And uh, your loved ones are never going to forget this. So run with it. I'm wishing everybody health and safety. Thank you so much, guys. Be well. I'm off to build a chicken coop. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, please. Bye. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.